this is a new era that we're you know um, living through you know, before the war and I think after the war. But the war, like any other conflict, like any other major event that happens, kind of exposes um, reality and, and sides of reality in ways that we um, that we don't see in, in regular times. And, and I think what was happening before the war is that you had the slow erosion of, of the U.S. role in the region and the U.S. dominance of the region. And now, you know, there's a multipolar world which is emerging and everyone is talking about in different ways. The China deal in March that same year in 2023, and everyone was asking, does that mean, does this, this does this usher a new era in which China would be playing a major role, etc.? So we had all of these big questions before, but I think this war has has really pushed forward um, a new reality in which you know um, it's not um, it's it's no longer the United States being um, in the lead, and Israel is not really able um, to crush its opponents in in ways that it was able previously. <laughs> This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar. This is the Beirut Banyan. One of the indicators that it's not a one uh, polar uh, world uh, is, is what's happening right now. Because Israel has been unable to achieve everything it wants as opposed to previous time, right? Yeah, one side of of this, but I'm also cautious about saying this because, you know, as I said, we're all learning and we're trying to understand. So this is um, that's very admirable. This is by not. The way, of this is not. Yeah, this is not an ultimate. Yeah, this is. Not, I, I don't. I don't see this as a, um, as you know, the reality. It might change in the next week or two sure. uh, in this conflict, but so far, you know, in, in four months. Um, you know, we saw in the beginning, um, you know, the Israeli army and the Israeli intelligence failures. And then afterwards, in, in the weeks after, we see Israel resorting to this uh, kind of destruction, which is, you know, also demonstrating um, some some weaknesses in, yes. in Israel's uh, capabilities that we haven't seen um, in the past. And um, I, th- I think, you know, the, the, the trajectory which was in course um, since 2000 onwards, not, you know, I understand why many Palestinians think that there might be um, some uh, way or some, some way forward in terms of pushing back against this, um, against this Israeli policy in the past two decades that has been um, in, in course, you know, from the disengagement from the Second Intifada and then the, uh, the rise of Sharon and then the, uh, uh, the disengagement from the, um, from the Gaza Strip, building the walls, sure. the West Bank, this um, super drive 
for building settlements um, across the West Bank. You know, all of these uh, major changes that we've seen and were a kind of a constant trajectory. You know, many Palestinians now feel, while they feel helpless, you know, um, regarding what's happening in the Gaza Strip and the massive destruction, but there's also some sort of um, a feeling of empowerment that they're able uh, to push back against this trajectory and this trend. And that uh, feeling of despair and helplessness, um, you know, does not need to be the, um, you know, prevailing. The, uh, state, the prevailing state of mind that they have. Sure, sure. Let's lean on this. We can talk about Palestine later and Gaza and uh, Hamas, but let's, let's lean on what you just said, that uh, Israel has been, uh, like, a, they don't have the same aura as before. And let's lean on that, because you've been interviewed by my colleague at Lorient today, and you talked about the possibility of war in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So, like, back then you said that there was an increasing, and I know you just said that the variables are changing on a maybe daily basis, like the Israeli politicians are very unpredictable, for example. Maybe Hezbollah is more predictable than uh, Israeli politicians. So, like uh, back then, you said there's an increasing danger for uh, an escalation of war in Lebanon. This is uh, a month uh, ago, or like two months ago, I can't remember. So, uh, regarding this, uh, is it the same uh, increasing uh, danger now? How how do you see it? Yeah, I mean the thinking, the thinking early on in the war. I think that interview was earlier um, during the war. The thinking was that as Israel achieved. Um, at least, you know, a, a great degree of um, of ad- ad- advances in its goals in the Gaza Strip that would turn around and deal with the Hezbollah threat, yes. which is what we're hearing right now. I mean, in, in a more um, uh, open way in the threats that are being put on the table, etc. And that the basis for this was that, you know, Israel, Israeli politics and Israeli defense uh, strategy has shifted. Yeah. Um, there's a stronger belief now in, in deterrence and preemptive strikes and the need to deal with uh, threats as they emerge and not just keep them under the lid and, and, and wait. Um, I mean, at least that's, that's the sense of... So of the debate. same momentum is still uh, ongoing, you, you think? Or so, there, there was a pushback since then? No, since then, that's, that's the sense of shock that there's, there's insecurity, there's a feeling of insecurity. Yeah, actually. I used the word order, but you're saying insecurity, yeah. Yeah, and, and the Israeli public is supportive of uh, military action against Hezbollah, against uh, Hamas, and, 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 and to a wider level. So there's this now appetite, at least that was early on in the war, that there's this appetite for the, um, for the conflict to go forward. And, um, you know, the, 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 the attacks from uh, Hezbollah on the southern fronts and the displacement of dozens of thousands of Israelis on the Israeli side have uh, pushed the um, the Israeli public into that thinking. And there were some pundits in, in Israel writing in Israeli newspapers saying that, you know, some of these tactics that were used on October 7 came out of the Hezbollah playbook, which we have seen um, like in what? the past decade. Like, for instance, the takeover of settlements, uh, you know, Nasrallah has been speaking consistently of y- using its special forces or what, if, what it has learned in the Syria conflict in, um, in, in attacking and moving, um, moving the battlefield from the Lebanese territories to the Israeli territories. Sure. So Hezbollah would be fighting 
on Israeli territory or on, on occupied Palestinian territories, according to the Hezbollah terminology, and that the, this war would be more costly to the Israelis than fighting on the Lebanese side yeah. of, of the borders. Sure. So it's a... Um, it's it's a shift that Hezbollah was talking about, yeah. um, you know, even more than a, about a decade, more than a decade ago, sure. it started discussing it. I think the first time they've mentioned it was in two thousand after two thousand six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you mean after that intervention in Syria because they started to get. Yeah, I mean, it was even before that they were talking about their ability to. Uh, but of course, you know, after their um, intervention in Syria, they've tried and used that. Sure. Now it's more of an offensive force, uh, or, you know, a, a more, more of a fighting capability that can take, um, that can change and shift battlegrounds rather than actually using the classical guerrilla tactics yeah. of um, hit and run. Do you think that has some truth to it? You're talking about it in the sense of threats. Do you think it has truth? No, I'm saying, I'm saying in terms of how the Israeli side um, was seeing this, yeah. saying that this, this threat that they faced on October 7 has actually emerged on the Lebanese side. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, they, in order to deal with the um, insecurity, the state of insecurity that they're living in, that they have to go and take the conflict to the next level. Sure. That was the thinking on the Israeli side. But do you think that's a legit concern from the Israelis or that's paranoia? I don't think there's, you know, I, I think, you know, Israel in its current state, uh, you know, has a lot of legitimacy, starting with occupation of Palestinian territories and... and um, yeah, not the business. I mean, even, even more than that, but, you know, but lots of illegitimacies that I, I think, you know, puts into question any concern that comes out of Israel as a legitimate one or not. But, you know, at the end but of what the day, do you think? this is a world of politics. Yeah. And, and, you know, for Israel... Uh, when they think about um, you know their insecurities, um, they only think of the security and military dimension, and not the political one. Sure. And I think that's a major flow that will continue to uh, dig deep um, in, in in ways um, you know not only in the Palestinian territories but even even beyond. Um, so it will be quite uh, difficult for them to deal um, with um, what comes out of. Um, you're saying they are more on the Gaza reactive than like proactive in terms of policy, tactical and reactive. I think they had an active policy, yeah. which was basically continual settlement building, deny the Palestinians, um, you know, rights across the board, and um, you know, try to take over, and you know, through your influence in the U.S. administrations try uh, to push out these settlements from the state of uh, illegitimacy that they were in into a state of legitimacy through using, you know, U.S. Um, uh, uh, US uh, influence and U.S. power uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to make their occupation legitimate. We saw that in the Golan Heights. We saw that with the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We saw that with the um, with the, the change in the status of uh, Israeli settlements in, in the West Bank as basically legitimate entities uh, on the course of actually acknowledging or, or uh, pushing the United States to um, adopt the reality and say this is the status quo. Um, these are part of Israel. And um, unfortunately, the Palestinians have a smaller stake in that land. So that's the Israeli policy. That's an active policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also a reactive policy that, you know, on the way you're doing that, you know, if any threat emerges, 
security threat, you react to it. Yeah. You know, showing disproportionate force to the extent that, you know, propels the other side um, to, um, to actually um, reconsider um, and, and think deeply before taking any, uh, any military action against Israeli occupation. And time is on your side, yeah. you know. Um, settlers in, um, were 250,000 uh, upon the signing of the Oslo Accords. Now there are 750,000, sure. you know, by the time another 10, uh, 10 years. And the growth has been increasing. So looking at the past few years, there has been one-third growth um, in, in terms of settlements and settlement building, etc. And now they're empowered. Politically speaking, inside Israel, inside Israeli society itself. Sure. So you know, when you look at that, you know, this is this is an uh, one. It's an active policy of occupation and uh, carving out um, uh, Palestinian territories and, and de diminishing the possibility of, of a Palestinian state. And at the same time, there's a reactive policy against any violence or any reaction that comes um, and tries to push back against that. Sure. Before uh, I go back to the original point, which yeah. is the potential of escalation, the danger of escalation, you were talking about the Israeli public, uh, and they are uh, supportive of what's happening, uh, either a full-scale war because of whatever reason, or like the settlement policy. Mm -hmm. But that uh, that wasn't completely the case when, for example, Rabin was prime minister, Isaac uh, Rabin. Then uh, Netanyahu came and. He's uh, say what you want about Netanyahu, bad uh, bad guy. So he's uh, he's very influential. So he kind of managed to shift not not him alone. There are other reasons mm. to shift the Israeli public to the far right. Do you think that that can be undone? Do you think the the Israeli public can be moved back to a more reasonable policy when Rabin was? Uh, Similar to when Rabin was prime minister, I'm not saying it was ideal, but to say what you want about it, it's better than what's happening now. I, th I think it's cycles. I mean, public opinion is shaped even in this way. I mean, now you have four months of fighting, as a um, you know, there's fatigue from the war, um, and there's also um, a need to uh, negotiate and release um, some of these sausages. So they're impacting the public opinion in ways. I mean, public opinion is shaped. Sure. You know, I'm, um, I'm not an expert on Israeli politics per se, but there are societal changes, the migration that happened since the 1990s, um, the shift in population, and also the shift in uh, elite trends and the takeover of the white. Um, you know, it, it is linked to all of these cases, but also... You know, we're looking at a state which whose economy has um, went grown five folds in in the matter of two decades. Sure. So it's a um, it's also a dimension that we have to look at and see who are the stakeholders in, in Israeli economy and who are um, the opinion uh, shapers and shakers and who are those um, um, you know who, who are those controlling the trends in in politics. You know, we've seen. Since the 1990s, um, a left-wing party become a fringe party, which is barely able to get an MP, and it used to dominate Israeli politics for many years. And I think, um, you know, when we look at these um, changes and trends, you know, we also have to be mindful of the cost of occupation and the ability of uh, Palestinians to increase um, that cost on the Israeli side. 
and, 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 and the impact of their actions on the uh, on Israeli politics. Um, it's not impossible, you're saying that. I, I think it's a combination of things. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, but also it has to do with um, Palestinian uh, militancy itself. You know, if, if um, Palestinians, um, you know, have a um, a clear goal set in front of them in terms of having a two-state solution or having a, um, a one-state with equal rights, um, etc., that these goals have to be set um, and, and uh, basically articulated in, in ways that do not play into the hands of their, um, you know, the right-wing um, politicians on the Israeli side in right. which and they will say, look at the Palestinians, they're not really partners for peace. Yeah. They want to destroy the state of Israel, um, etc. So, you know, I think that has, to a certain extent, that has to do with um, Palestinian uh, approach, rhetoric. Yeah. P- perhaps at a smaller level than, let's say, the cost of the occupation and, sure. and, and the, um, the feeling that they need to shift politics to have more stability and security um, on their end. You know, I, but at the end of the day, I mean, as I said, I'm not an expert on Israeli politics sure, and sure. society. So I, I, I'm, I'm trying like to move back to Lebanon for yeah, a long yeah. time. But, but like, no, you're saying some interesting stuff. So you were saying about the Palestinian. One more question before I try to go back to Lebanon. Uh, Palestinian rhetoric, I think, I have a feeling you're talking about Hamas's doctrine, which includes throwing like uh, throwing the not not uh, literally that but like they they say uh, uh, conflicting things sometimes they say they recognize the Israeli state Israeli state and other times they say we want to uh, throw them in the sea so is, is this part of what you are talking about that should be changed in a more acceptable uh, way for for peace at least I don't. I haven't heard Hamas saying that we're going to throw them in the sea. I, th- I think that's not a, literally that. But yeah, like, but I think there's there's a bit of an Israeli. This is a bit of an Israeli claim, um, also um, uh, to that specifically. Yeah. But what we've heard Hamas, one Hamas official, say that we will repeat the October seven yeah. attack. This is new, but I'm, uh, I'm speaking along days just recently. to clarify what what I meant. I'm saying I'm saying not literally. Let's yeah. throw them, but liberating the whole state, like of of. Palestine, Palestine. Yeah, they they say that uh, instead of you know they say we want to build a Palestinian state, but they don't speak about the other state. Yeah. About you know what kind of Israeli state is acceptable to them. Yeah, uh, for instance. Yeah, and, and what kind of existence for Israel is acceptable for them? So and that's problematic. Yeah, and that's problematic in the sense that uh, many see like this. Um, many in the Fatah movement, for instance, and. Palestinian, um, some of the Palestinian voices that I that I follow, and, and um, they they say that such um, such militancy or such um, Palestinian politics is not conducive to the aims of uh, like, Palestinians. Like. And, and for instance, like you know, establishing a Palestinian state. If that's if that's a goal you want to follow, or you want to have a one-state solution. You know, ha- having something which is um, feasible, um, at least to a part of the Israeli public, um, acceptable for, uh, let's say, in terms of, um, you know, what, what the um, current state of affairs is, in which, you know, you have, um, and, and now, of course, there's a white-wing Israeli public opinion 
which is tilting to the right wing, but there's also um, a part of the Israeli society which is, is not um, uh, offended or is not um, totally opposed to the idea of a Palestinian state. Sure. So if, if you are designing your goals and your objectives in a way which takes this part of society into consideration and you're able to form a force within Israeli society which would be supportive of your aims, you know, that's, I think that, that will go somewhere. So you're saying they have to be more realistic, basically. You're saying a two-state uh, two solution for now, on the short term, is more realistic than a one-state solution, right? With all the... Perhaps, hatred, but, I, yeah. but, I, but I'm, also sh I'm also shy from... Um, I, I would shy away from saying what the Palestinians have, uh, you know, what kind of uh, resistance or sure. what kind of anti-occupation sure, policy sure. they should have at the end of the day. You know, this is a Palestine. This is a population which is subjected to occupation, yeah. subjected to um, you know a colonial rule, which has been basically um, a type of colonialism, um, which is you know some say it's a century late yeah, yeah. Uh, or half a century late. Um, so I, you know, it's, I would shy from saying what they should do, but what I'm saying is, you know, if there's if if Palestinian. Um, factions are to sit down and say and review the policies of the past and see where they want to go forward from here. And I think, you know, looking at, um, you can't do the same thing and expect different results. So you need to change course and, and, and try to be more strategic, um, specifically because we're looking at a high a toll among Palestinians and, and basically a great deal of Palestinian suffering. Yeah. So taking that into consideration, also taking the geopolitics and, and um, you know, um, and, and the great support Israel has from Western powers, um, regardless of Palestinian suffering. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, this has to be taken into consideration when uh, setting the strategy. Sure, ahead. sure. And just to clarify myself as well, I share yeah. the same feeling of being shy of like lecturing the Palestinians about what they should do when they are the ones who are living their occupation. I share the same feeling with you and like if, the previous comment I, I made about like Hamas wanting to throw them in the city, it wasn't a criticism of Hamas. I was just playing the devil's advocate just so I, uh, I see everybody. Anyway, to get back, to go back to Lebanon, we were talking about the potential of uh, escalation. You were saying the Israeli public take uh, that uh, seriously, uh, take the what happened on October 7th uh, seriously, and it uh, created uh, Paranoia among them that uh, might drive them to uh, to escalate uh, things, including in Lebanon. Do you think again? Uh, my colleague interviewed you at least a month ago. Do you think the same momentum, the same danger exists today? I don't know if if the same um, um, danger exists today in the sense that um, you know in in Israeli politics, what what what's what worked or the way we saw things back then is that once there's a, um, there are some advances in the Gaza Strip that they would turn back and, and turn their cannons against Lebanon and start an operation against Hezbollah. Um, I don't know whether that stands um, now in terms of internal Israeli dynamics. I see you know, Netanyahu also interested in, in a long-term conflict um, which would, uh, you know, secure him uh, a longer time in office, given the problems that he has and troubles that he has internally. But I think, um, you know, we have four months of evidence of uh, Hezbollah showing consistently that they don't want a wider conflict. 
For sure. And um, very consistent um, and very consistent in trying to avoid Israeli casualties as well. A very low toll of Israeli casualties. I think Hezbollah, given its history and its military capabilities, they're able to inflict higher casualties on the Israeli side. They haven't done that. Yeah. Um, and the same thing applies to the um, to how they're keeping the conflict confined. You know how they responded to the Haruri assassination in the southern suburbs of Beirut. Although Nasrallah made a clear statement saying, that "If you target the southern suburbs of Beirut, we will target Tel Aviv." It was very clear. You mean in 2006 or? Uh... Um, no, after 2006. Yeah. No, in the years after 2006, yeah. in his speeches, he consistently said that any bombing of the southern uh, suburbs of Does Beirut. Did he say Beirut Dahi, or Dahi, Dahi. Okay. We'll target Tel Aviv. He okay. said that clearly. Yeah, yeah. So now, you know, we, we, we see that they're consistently trying to avoid the conflict. So I think the 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 question is whether Israel will, will get involved and I think uh, the you know there still are elements within the Israeli government specifically Netanyahu interested in prolonging the conflict but I think they're also aware of the risk attached to this if the if Hezbollah responds with a high firepower um, as Nasrallah said there will be no red lines basically um, bombing um, uh, Israeli cities etc this would lead to a higher degree of insecurity within Israel itself, which would be difficult to manage. The, the impact is being considered as they gauge the way forward. Um, so I would suppose it's less, and it's also a third factor that we have to take into consideration is basically the political process, the negotiations happening. You know, there are um, different uh, channels being pursued, and these negotiations will lead eventually to some yeah. sort of deal yeah. and the fact that there are some advances and they see the uh, you know how, how uh, diplomacy can achieve these uh, goals I think this third this third level could um, could help them um, um, you know could help mitigate yeah. the decision to go into war with Hezbollah sure. um, in Lebanon but at the same time you know um, there are variables which are basically, um, you know, Netanyahu making uh, with his allies and Espan Likud and, and, and other, sure. as, as other right-wing allies, Smotrich, Ping V. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of variables. Yeah, yeah. Taking the decision to do to go to war for yeah. uh, entirely political reasons, um, not related to whatever they're going to achieve from war, but I think that's that's a huge risk. And uh, one thing we know about Netanyahu is not really a risk taker. Speaking about this uh, potential and risk, at the beginning of the war, uh, there were reports that Israel wanted to uh, do an, a preemptive uh, strike on Lebanon when the war uh, started. And the Washington Post said that the Americans were the ones who prevented them from uh, doing that. So, like, I always uh, ask myself this uh, question. Like, uh, you see what, uh, over the years, the war in Syria, Lots of massacres, lots of uh, bad things. Uh, it haven't been uh, like uh, covered as much as it has, but like uh, take the Beirut explosion, for example, versus the war and massacre in Syria. I think Lebanon got uh, a lot of attention. Like for the US and other countries, so like uh, Russia, Israel, allegedly, not to, uh, not to start, uh, uh, not to escalate things and not to do a preemptive threat to I ask myself this all the time. Why is Lebanon spoiled 
Like, look at what's happening in Syria, look at Palestine, look at Iraq. Why is Lebanon spoiled in that, uh, in that dynamic? I don't think Lebanon is spoiled. I think Lebanon, uh, you know, 1982 invasion, 1978 invasion, 1993 war, 1996 war, a massacre that happened in Qana and shocked many. 2006 conflict was super shock, shocking. Um, but I think uh, now we're in a stage in which, you know, Lebanon has, um, let's say, up to 2 million refugees, Syrian refugees, has already been through a lot in terms of its um, economic and financial crises. A conflict at that scale would create um, a refugee problem. Okay. And I think there's a, um, um, you know, the, the, given the conflict in, in Ukraine, there's a tendency to try and keep the Gaza war confined in Gaza, not turn into regional escalation because of these reasons and because of its impact, potential impact on the global economy and the fact that the US is in an elections year. Um, and, um, you know, so, you know, one, on one hand, the European consideration regarding the uh, refugee crisis and also um, its uh, lack of appetite for another um, in, in, uh, spot of instability or source of instability sure. in, in the southern Mediterranean. But on the other hand, you know, also, um, you know, the U.S., um, as I said, the elections and um, considerations um, when it comes to the um, the history of the U.S. involvement in the region since 2001. You know, these were, were what, what we know now in, in U.S. politics as the forever wars in the region. Yeah. That the U.S. does not want to be involved in yet another conflict. And dragging Israel into a conflict, um, dragging um, the United States into a conflict in the region will, you know, will take years to solve and will definitely have an impact sure. domestically inside the United States. Yeah. So there's not really an appetite for all of that. And there's also an understanding that, you know, Hezbollah uh, today is different than Hezbollah of 2006. It has the military capabilities to inflict serious damage on the Israeli side if um, Israel wants to go to war. So that's why I asked, like when I said sport, I went in the recent history, of course, there was the invasion of 1982, the pre-2000 years are maybe a bit different, but like, uh, yeah, there's no, like the West, the West is a big world, but like they, they are not, uh, they try to push back from any escalation of Lebanon, but you are saying uh, the refugees are, are a big factor uh, in that, in a Lebanese context. Um, you were talking about uh, Hezbollah's capabilities and like them, uh, avoiding uh, causing casualties in the Israeli army or not. Uh, so Hezbollah, what it is uh, doing now in the south, do you think it has a major impact on what's happening in uh, Gaza? Because this is hard to quantify. Uh, Nasrallah claimed a third of their forces are in Lebanon right now. That's the, uh, not in Lebanon, like on the Lebanese front. Uh, uh, yeah, so they can say we are distracting them from Hamas, we have uh, a lot of gain. But there's another opinion, like, that their uh, intervention is uh, in terms of influence and in terms of helping the Palestinians and Hamas, their allies, is like uh, negligible. So not zero, but like close to uh, zero. So what, what do you think about this? I'm not a military expert. Again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an yeah. <laughs> expert on, on this. And I, um, but I, when, when you look at the... Um, at the uh, um, 
the way um, Israeli forces are uh, being deployed, that you have a great number of reservists here and there, including the Gaza Strip, um, which, according to what we're saying, you know, like the Khan Yunus ambush, now, the fact that these reservists are not as experienced as the um, the uh, combat-ready um, battalions in the Israeli army, that this is leading to higher casualties. So what Nasrallah has said in the past in regards to um, his ability and his for- and, and Hezbollah's accomplishment in keep uh, engaging as many Israeli forces as possible. Uh, on the borders, which would help, um, ha- would help Hamas, I think has some credibility. Um, is is you know, perhaps partially correct yeah. from from the way it seems. But again, I'm not you know I'm not an expert on on the, on the military strategy and, and how the operations are ongoing there. Um, and also, what Nasrallah said about not wanting the war to be about Hezbollah and Iran yeah. and keeping the centrality of the Palestinian cause um, in, in, in the media and also in public discourse is important in the sense that this is a sideshow. Yeah. This is not the main conflict. The main conflict is in Gaza. This is a what he called the solidarity and support front in the south of Lebanon. I think this has also some credibility. Okay. Um, yeah. But in terms of um, you know all the details that he gave you know, yeah, yeah. The targeting. Sure, sure. I think I think this requires a bit more scrutiny. <laughs> but, sure. but in terms of these two main points, one in terms of where the attention should be, it should be on the Gaza Strip and what's happening in Gaza and not in South Lebanon. And I think uh, I think this this um, this makes sense. And secondly, when it comes to the engagement of a large number of Israeli battalions, we're seeing them moving now, and we're saying also. You know, the, the worry about this going regional is not only driving Israeli calculations, but also driving Western calculations about the need to end this faster. And I think that's contributing um, to the conflict. But in return, I think Iran and Hezbollah are also gaining a lot from what's happening. Yes. In terms of the public opinion, in terms of Sunni politics, um, in terms of, you know, undoing all of the damage that they've incurred and their um, and the conflicts that they've been involved in, from Iraq um, to Syria, which had, um, um, I think, impacted them negatively. Yeah. Uh, being seen as sectarian actors, yes. supporting a dictator in Syria, um, with all the atrocities that we saw in Syria. Uh, which, actually, if you look at Yarmouk camp and you look at the Gaza Strip and uh, you look at uh, Duma and you look at the Gaza Strip, you know, so many um, images, you know, strike you as, as very similar, um, you know, although this is a wider scale in, in Syria. Um, and if you add to that, of course, the torture machine in, in, in uh, Assad's Syria, which sure. get dozens of thousands uh, of Syrians in, in these um, concentration camps that the Syrian regime has built. So Iran and Hezbollah's involvement in, in, in these conflicts have actually led to um, you know Iran being tainted, tainted as as the sectarian actor. Sure. 
And this goes against the DNA of Khomeinism, which you know introduced itself um, to the world and to the Islamic world as a non-sectarian actor, yeah. um, fighting against uh, imperialism. Uh, imperialism and against uh, the U.S. and, and uh, trying to build a different Islamic world. Sure, sure. Especially the Houthis, um, no? They were uh, never as popular as they are today. Yeah, the Houthis, and I think what what strikes me more about the Houthis is not only that they're popular among the Arab world, or I wouldn't say popular, it would be more cautious than using the word popular, but, you know, seen less negatively in the yeah. Arab world than, than they were um, um, previously, is basically how they're seen inside Yemen. That, um, you know, what, what they did um, is has constituency even among those who opposed them in Yemen. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, seeing some voices who were, who were against them in the past and now um, are saying, okay, we support what they're doing here, although we're still against them in general, you know, we're still yeah. in the opposition to the Houthis. And I, that strikes me as, as I think, as, as something that we should look at and, and perhaps when we think about the larger trends and the wider trends in the region. Yeah. And what kind of impact this conflict might have yeah. on, on shaping uh, the region afterwards, and I think this is this brings you brings us to the short sightedness in uh, launching this conflict and launch and uh, inflicting this type of violence, uh, collective punishment against Palestinians, and the Western positioning, um, which was also short sighted yeah. and uh, and very reactionary. Sure, and I think that you know that there are wider implications and long term ones that you know we have to. Observe and you know. Also, we cannot tell now what they would be. You know, perhaps they'll you know go yeah. away after the conflict, a few months. Because yeah. you know, this is a this is a region of many troubles. But I but I suspect that much of it will stay um, after the war. What you were talking about the Houthis, yeah. the dynamic with its uh, public, with the Yemeni public. If we try to uh, study it from a Lebanese perspective, from Hezbollah and uh, the Lebanese politics uh, perspective. Do you feel that there's also a lot of uh, sympathy for Hezbollah for fighting Israel these days, or it's not the same dynamic? As you mean regionally, in the, pub, in the public? No, no, Lebanese public. Lebanese public. I mean, we haven't seen any polls to say anything kind of scientific about it. Sure. You know, gauging from some of the people that I spoke to yeah. um, previously, and I, and I meet regularly, and that's a small specimen that we cannot say for sure that this represents yeah. uh, public opinion. But you can see clearly that there's, um, you know, less uh, vigor and uh, or, or or there's less politically charged Hezbollah's weapons now. Yes. Um, and I th- I think that started a little bit before the conflict, but with the conflict, it's it's picked up and people are saying the Hezbollah weapons, specifically among the Sunni community. Um, in different light, they're saying, okay, we, we see what the Israelis can, are capable of doing, and we see that the West has no breaks over what uh, Israel does in the region. They can go in and destroy a whole population, kick them out. Yeah. ICJ can start a, uh, a case and see there's a plausible reason to look into genocide, sure. and still no Western power will come out and say, you know, no, no major Western power. Of course, Belgium and Spain have already called for a ceasefire. Yeah, yeah. But still, you know, the majority of, of uh, European and, and, and the U.S., of course, um, are still backing the Israeli war. And so with people saying that, they say, OK, we don't have a strong army here. 
So maybe we need Hezbollah's weapons. And I'm starting to see that line. Um, and, and not only that, I mean, some people are um, against Hezbollah, are less charged when speaking about Hezbollah's weapons. Yeah. And, and think about it. And but isn't it because it's, it's kind of a taboo to criticize someone who's fighting Israel? Isn't that a factor? I think that's a factor. Another factor is the anger that you have with, uh, yeah. with the Israeli conflict. Sure. So it might be just a temporary phase. And also the fact that, you know, with, with the war in Gaza happening, you know, everything else remains small when you look at the bigger picture. So when perhaps when the, when the war stops, you know, these who, who think now along these terms will change their opinion yes. once another Lebanese small problem or another sectarian clash happens in the neighborhood sure. or in Lebanon. Sure. You know, these, these, this mood will shift. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's quite early to say, you know, this will stay with us or this will go away after the conflict. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really a formative phase. And um, you know, uh, you know, as we're looking at, at, at the conflict, um, you know, I, I think, uh, and as we're shocked, um, you know, we have a tendency to make these sweeping statements and say, you know, this is how the Arab world, the all, uh, all of the Arab world will be charged, taking up uh, weapons to fight for Palestine, or you know, or this Palestinian cause will be central to Arab political thinking across uh, the region again. Um, and and and, but I think these are all sweeping statements. We need to wait and see, you know, how the conflict ends and how also the Western um, nations react um, in the next phase. Maybe we'll see a shift. Maybe we'll see a paradigm shift. Sure. Maybe what the British and the Americans are talking about in terms of recognizing um, a Palestinian state will be on the table, and sure. there will be a push there. And maybe Israeli politics, you know, with guns, maybe you know. I think there are so many variables that it's, it's quite difficult to see um, any of them uh, take center stage and, and say, you know, this this will this will happen. Difficult to predict. Uh, sure. That's definitely one of the one of the war <laughs> fact. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, on the political uh, scale, I would have expected more pushback to the intervention of Hezbollah in the south than yeah. what we are seeing today. I want to ask you something as a researcher. The Hezbollah-Iran relationship, because I think about this uh, a lot. Mm. Um, is it, uh, there's, there's many questions I want to ask about this, but like, is it, um, what, what do you think about that relationship? Is it, does Iran make the big calls with, mm. with its axis of resistance, so-called axis of uh, resistance, and with Hezbollah, does Iran make all the calls, or does Hezbollah, like, which is the best, uh, the most powerful uh, proxy that Iran has, does it have enough power to like, say no to Iran or like, to make its own decisions? So what, what do you think about that uh, relationship? I think um, you know, Iran does, of course, play a major role in setting the strategy. And you can see it in Khamenei's speeches um, and times like, for instance, after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the major goal is basically drive U.S. forces outside the region. And, uh, you know, the Hezbollah and others who are allies or uh, proxies or whatever you want to call them, you know, I, I usually prefer the word ally rather than a proxy because the proxy removes agency from uh, sure, sure. from their actions. And yeah. I think Hezbollah does have agency. Yeah, yeah I meant, uh, I meant proxy. Yeah. yeah. So I... I 
I think Hezbollah does decide on what kind of um, uh, route does it want in terms of achieving that strategic goal. Um, and, and they have discussions regularly with Iran on this. And, um, you know, Hezbollah is different from the rest of the proxies in the sense that, you know, this is an organization which had, um, I mean, also, I'll, 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 I'll go back and I say it's different than the rest of the allies and proxies because I, I believe it's, a, um, it's at a different level um, um, in, in, in this phase. You know, this is an organization which um, was established in the early 1980s, 1982, and some even go back to some of the meetings and some of the activism in, in the late 1970s. Um, so this is an organization that was basically um, in place for most of the life of the Islamic Republic of Iran and most of the life of this regime. And this is an organization which succeeded in, 2000, in the year 2000 to drive away um, Israeli forces and secure a great win which gave, um, I think, the uh, Islamic Republic in Iran a, a lot of political credit to maneuver in the region. And this is a group which survived the 2006 war. Um, and this is a group in uh, upon the Arab revolutions or Arab uh, Spring uh, uprisings in 2010, 2011, played a leading role in shaping Iran's regional policy beyond um, its involvement in Lebanon. So this is a party which played a role in Iraq, yeah. in uh, Yemen, and, 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 and many other places. Sure. You know, the, 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 the deal that happened between the Houthi movement and Ali Abdullah Saleh and his regime in, in Yemen was mostly woven by uh, Hezbollah. Or Hezbollah played a good role in, in kind of uh, in, in shaping the, this trajectory of Yemeni politics leading to the conflict and what came afterwards. And, and that is, is very important in saying, you know, uh, when looking at this, it's very important to see um, that Hezbollah, you know, maybe in, in, in this specific role, did not go back to Iran in every detail and knock on their doors and say, you know, this is what's going to, uh, this, these are the, the, uh, the courses of action that we can take here and there. What about only, only strategically, they would come and say, okay, we have a role to play in Yemen. There's an opening that we can play. And, you know, and I think... Um, you know, we, we look more at Hezbollah in, in the um, 2010 onwards as a, um, you know, kind of a regional consultancy in a way that, um, that has taken its experience and its success and trying to replicate it um, in, in different places. You know, in, in Iran, early on, there was this um, office for the export of the Islamic revolution. And that was part of the... Um, Khomeinist vision that you know this is this is a revolution it occurred in Iran, but it's also an opening to spread Islamic awakening across across the region, and Islamic awakening along the same Khomeinist um, ideals, which is anti-imperialism, um, an Islamic uh, rule, and going back to these Islamic values, and it's a bit overlapping with you know some um, some of the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and there are the influences that are there. So on a, on a goal like Lebanon, for example, the Hezbollah's intervention in South Lebanon, do you think Hezbollah 
had enough uh, independence to make the call uh, themselves, like to intervene, but not uh, start a full-scale war. I think, you know, if, if, you, if you go back a little bit, a decade, yeah. decade ago, um, in the uh, Syria conflict, and um, Hamadani is one of the generals, uh, Iranian generals who died in Syria, but also wrote his memoirs, and he was talking about the involvement of Iran in, in, uh, in the conflict. Hezbollah was pushing for the involvement and it came, you know, it was it was basically lobbying for that. Sure. And it was Nasrallah's view that there should be an intervention um, in, in Syria to save Bashar al-Assad and save his regime because if it's gone, it will have an impact not only on Hezbollah, but on, on, um, also on Iran's network and regional clout, etc. I think the same might have happened here. I have no, I have no clue. Yeah, no one, what, knows, you know, no one knows what happened behind closed doors. But I think you know this could have happened. And I think you know also looking beyond that, Hezbollah does. We see a lot of signs of what the Israelis do in the United States. APAC. Yeah. Um, Hezbollah has a number of Persophile, um, uh, Persian-speaking. Uh, members, sure. senior members, like for instance, Nawaf Musawi has Nasrallah himself as a Persian, as a yes. fluent uh, Farsi speaker. So these these Farsi speakers, they go and they and, and they um, they have some uh, meetings, some um, public uh, showing in Iran. They they do some lobbying work, and whenever there's a new administration, a new presidency, they see who's who in the. Uh, among the officials, they invite them over to Lebanon. You can see always in the news that there's a number of Iranian officials showing up in Mlita and giving them the tour and taking them around, saying what uh, what Iran has uh, kind of achieved sure. uh, with its investment in Lebanon. Sure, sure. And I think there's this drive that you know it exists in in the relationship. It's not a one-sided relationship in which Iran you know sends an envelope and you know they they yeah. get the uh, secret word and then they go to conflict. There's a back and forth in which you know Hezbollah, um, you know, um, tries to uh, explain and, and lobby um, in a certain direction, which they think is, is best for their interests. And they have there is a worry in the back of their minds that you know at some stage this funding will stop, sure. and that the Islamic Republic might you know be endangered by whatever happens in there. And so they're aware of, of that threat and. Um, and, and they're aware that at some point there might be other priorities for the Islamic Republic than supporting Hezbollah. Yeah. So there's always this drive of uh, keeping Iran interested in in this relationship, in this strategic relationship. Um, and I think uh, you know the, this is a two-way street, not a, not a, not a one-way one. Sure, but to play the devil's advocate here, you mentioned that Nasrallah speaks Farsi. Uh, in one of the interviews, Nasrallah said in Arabic, he said, we don't have to receive orders from the Ayatollah for us to do yeah. it. You're familiar with the interview I'm talking about. He said, he said, we don't have to receive orders from the Ayatollah for us to do it. We only have to feel what he wants from us for us to do. Hmm. So he's saying that. Should we, should we not uh, hold him uh, accountable to his words? That, that's, that, what do you think? They say more than that. I mean, um, they say, which is basically the doctrine that they adhere to means absolute leadership. Yeah. That if the Wali al-Faqih, um, Ali Khamenei, um, orders you to divorce your wife uh, because this you know, will help the Ummah, you have to do it. Who said that? 
No, I'm saying I'm saying that this is this is basically ah, the doctrine. Yeah, 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 doctrine. yeah. And I think in in one of in one of his one of the statements, um, I think by Naim Qasim, he mentions that you know that they are he is representative of a long line of imams and prophets leading to the divine. Okay. So he's a representative of the divine. Okay. But do we take you know this rhetoric? At face value and say that's what oh, I'm asking. This is what they do and this is how they yeah. go forward. No, really, okay. I don't think I don't think so. I think, I think you know, everyone. If 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 you look at the hierarchy and, and the logic of Wilayat al-Faqih stands, if if this is a um, someone who represents the divine, and Nasrallah also represents the divine within his organization, and it goes down to the neighborhood the chief <laughs> who represents divine sure and if, so you if, think that's and, a populist and if all of these are divine um, and, and this is someone who represents the divine why does Hezbollah hold internal elections yeah for sure, if, for sure you know why not just take the word from the divine and uh, himself and just because they know everything and you know they have uh, so then why would Nasrallah say such a thing it's a populist I, I, I it's, think it's it's part of um, you know, uh, showing allegiance um, consistently and uh, praising Iran and also showing allegiance to Iran. And it's part of the drive, the PR drive. Yeah. You know, Nasrallah now is a, uh, you know, popular leader across the region. He's speaking about Palestine and, and strong fervor. And he's also doing action in South Lebanon. So this, many people view him positively across the region. Sure. And so now when they... When they see him uh, speaking about Palestine and Gaza, and then he slips a few words here about you know the divine, and about not necessarily the divine, but about the leadership of Ali Khamenei and about his vision, etc. This would put Khamenei in positive light. At the end of the day, he's the Arabic spokesperson sure. or the spokesperson in Arabic, to an Arabic region yes. at large, on behalf of Iran. You know, uh, people will not tune in to listen to Khamenei's speech in Arabic, in broken Arabic. They will listen to Nasrallah in his eloquent, <laughs> broken Arabic, yeah, yeah. eloquent ways. And they will say, okay, you know, he says Khamenei is great, then Khamenei might be great. Good. Um, what about, like, does Iran, before getting into this point, so you're saying, okay, Iran doesn't like dictate what's going to happen, but but does, it does do dictate they... at a at a high level. Like let's say strategically speaking, yeah. yeah. You know, so Nasrallah is not coming up with a crazy idea yeah. saying yeah, let's uh, let's organize a great uh, you know um, a change across the region and sure. let's align with Saudi Arabia. Sure, 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 sure. So he understands. He's someone that who understands the the grand scheme of things, Iranian politics and Iranian strategy. And he understands the framework and he comes up with ideas within that framework. Sure. So there is a sense of, you know, as the umbrella is there. Yeah. But it's it's basically how wide is the umbrella? Um, so, so and, if, and there's a give and take, which I think is an Iranian strength. Sure. So if, if Iran wanted a full scale war in Lebanon with Hezbollah in your opinion, for example. I think they would push back against the war. I mean, if they see strategically, yeah. this war, this war will lead um, to uh, massive destruction yeah. and will uh, impair the organization's ability to repair itself. I think they will push back. Push back and not do anything, or push back in opinion, push but back. then they have to do something. Push back in terms of you know the negotiations at that level. I mean, um, I mean if the um, if there's, you know, within the um, within Iran's, um, if 
mean, knowing Khamenei is not, um, I, I, you know, knowing and understanding, you know, the, the history of Khamenei and his politics, he would not come down with an order like that. We haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I mean, how many strikes have we seen on Iran in the past years? Assassinations of the uh, scientists, the assassination of the Fakhrizada, the, you know, the, the Iranian, uh, the senior Iranian official on Iranian soil in Tehran. Um, the, the mysterious explosions and fires that we've seen, the assassination of, of one of the most senior military commanders Very in Iran. Senior, yeah. And all of these happened. Did we see Iran go into a war with, with Israel? Not really. You know, we haven't seen... Yeah, but uh, but hypothetically. Yeah, Iran responded from Iranian soil yeah. against the U.S. base in Iraq. Yeah. They didn't use Hezbollah okay. to launch. Because they have to, no? No, because they have to, because they understand, um, you know, because they, they they understand the implications of that. Okay. Uh, you know, these are uh, buttons that you don't push, um, you know, it's a one-time uh, button, and a button and that's it. Yeah, what if, yeah, exactly. What if they needed to go all in? I don't think they would need to. I mean, Hezbollah serves more as a deterrence. Um, yeah, than actually as um, a tool of war against Israel. True. It's a deterrence, it's a pressure point. Um, it's, um, it's like, you know, acupuncture, you know, you, you go with small needles. Sure, so you think they would never go on? You don't, you don't go in. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think they I don't think Iran would uh, enter a large-scale war unless there's a... I don't mean in this situation. You, you don't I mean, if there's a U.S. Uh, sustained U.S. bombing campaign yeah. against Iran, the top of the regime, then yes, I think Hezbollah... It, it might join. happen, though, no? Like, war on Iran could happen, possibly. I'm not, I'm not, you know, yeah. difficult, difficult to say. Okay. Uh, but if, if, you know, this happens, and perhaps, yeah, Hezbollah will join because Hezbollah has an interest in that. Also in joining, and I think then because they want to keep their funders, you mean? Yeah, because if Iran is gone, I think you know the whole uh, yeah. domino effect will uh, sure. happen, and I think uh, it sure. will impact all of its partners across the region. And it's it's uh, you know needed for Hezbollah to step in and defend uh, the Islamic Republic if this happens. But we're talking about such an extreme case yeah. with a state which is extremely cautious. Yeah. I'm trying to understand, like from your point yeah. of view, yeah. So, like, uh, with that being said, would you say that Iran negotiated, like you call it a pressure point, Hezbollah or other uh, proxies, would Iran negotiate on their behalf with the, with the Americans, with the, whoever is in, on the table? Always, every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so they negotiate. They negotiate on their behalf. They're, okay. you know, definitely, uh, you know, when, when, when Iran shows up at a negotiating table in a back channel, yeah, everyone knows that you know, has a power that goes beyond um, the borders, and these players are included. Sure. What What do you think is taking place uh, during the negotiations? What are they negotiating? Are they neg- What does Hezbollah want? We we are reading the reading the reports about like yeah, maybe Israel can give up uh, uh, occupied borders, and because uh, I don't know. If, and Hezbollah, I don't know how Hezbollah would like uh, achieve that uh, Israeli concern. Like, uh, so, uh, so, 
So like, how do you see this taking place? Hezbollah, as far as I understand, would never retaliate from the south. And even if they said they want to, hmm. the residents are Hezbollah fighters. Like, uh, some of them are Hezbollah fighters. So like, uh, even if they said they will, who guarantees this is uh, going to happen? You can't withdraw Hezbollah from the borders. That's really yeah. impossible. I mean, these, as you said, there are residents in, in these towns. And this is a population which, um, you know, resisted the Israeli occupation. And there's definitely a, um, a sentiment there for resistance and for Hezbollah uh, within these border regions. Um, so it's, it's unrealistic. But I think what is meant by Hezbollah's withdrawal is withdrawal of certain uh, strategic weapons. Um, and who, who Hezbollah is using, um, I think Hezbollah would would say that I've done that. But then, um, you know, in terms of the mechanism, you know, you would have UNIFIL and the Lebanese army within 1701 can do this job. But UNIFIL is not as capable given, given the limitations of the past years. It has a great role to play, but it's the Lebanese army, which is the one um, expected to deliver on this on this front. But the question is, you know, this is a Lebanese army which is now in in crisis mode, given the Lebanese economic and financial crisis, um, and and hence, you know, to have to to recover the Lebanese army from the impact of the past four years, you need to have a political package deal, in which there will be a recovery plan. Uh, this we're talking about a very long process leading to enabling the Lebanese army to play such a such an important role specifically because the Lebanese army is now um, expected to deliver more on security internally within Lebanon different border regions etc so will the army um, can the army play this role now um, you know in, in this in this uh, uh, environment without a political deal it's, I think it's, it's difficult um, to see that um, happen and political deal I mean and pushing forward the political process in Lebanon. It's been dormant um, for quite some time now since the last elections. And there needs to be some sort of an effort, diplomatic effort, to um, put the political process on, you know, um, in, in place, leading to the voting in of a new president, a new government, recovery plan for the economy and for the country after these years that we've seen. A very long process. So I think, um, you know, what we're looking at is, you know, I think minimal guarantees that could be overturned. But also this has to go both sides. So Nasrallah in his speech mentioned something which, which I think is, is interesting and, and we should watch this, which is he spoke about, you know, Israeli violation of Lebanese airspace. And so if, you know, they manage to secure that on one hand and on the other, um, they give some guarantees of that form. Um, you know, I think I think we, um, you know, there could be a deal, and and there's a there's a process now. Sure, there are negotiations channels that we've discussed, and I think you said there channels. was advance. Yes, Abu Saab yeah. is one channel with the U.S. There's another channel, uh, which we are saying uh, through the French and the Qatari um, envoy. You know, these channels are reaching, are discussing details. And I think there is, you know, there is a, a deal that's taking shape. 
um, what we're waiting for is the Gaza, uh, the end of the Gaza war, the ceasefire in Gaza and whatever comes after that, because we're looking at different phases. So perhaps we will see phases on the Lebanese end in parallel to what happens in, in the Gaza Strip, leading to the, um, you know, to the solution which is taking shape now, given the discussions. Yeah, they, do you think Israel would respect the truce in, in Lebanon? Because they, I think God said they yeah. would not. And, that, and that's a huge variable inside Israel. Yeah. I mean, what, is, what is the political calculation of the next administration? You know, will Netanyahu survive this? It's a huge variable. You can't just put your finger on it and say this is going to happen. It's difficult to see, you know, and perhaps there will be a new Trump administration um, and or, you know, or Biden will win again and will push and pressure the Israelis um, to accept a two-state solution. You know, this is a year of so many variables and so many things can change um, in the next year. So it's quite difficult to, um, to see that. But I think if Hezbollah secures an understanding or a political deal of that sort um, with, with Israel internally, there's... Um, some sort of a new administration in, in Lebanon, a new government, um, a president which is, was voted in, and you know we're heading into economic recovery. I, th- I, I think you know Hezbollah will try to uh, focus on on that in the next phase rather than sure. um, head head to a conflict with Israel, which will be extremely destructive. And why? Uh, <laughs> so uh, we have a surprise today. Um, yeah, the... I think is more than enough. I'd like to start by saying uh, there are a few outlets that I read uh, diligently on what's happening, yeah. on things that I don't fully understand. And Diwan, thanks to you, Michael Young, and several other writers, uh, I actually, I get goosebumps when there's a new piece published. Oh. That is actually reminiscent of when I used to read Michael Young and Now Lebanon. And I know that you were editing in Now Lebanon as well in the old days, the old version of Now Lebanon. So I still look forward to this written word analysis. And I heard you mentioning with Will that you said it in several ways that you don't claim to know more or you don't pretend to know everything that's happening. You're learning on the way. So as I'm listening in the background and reaching this point of what a deal looks like, I'm mm. always going back in time. I want to pick your brain on whether or not there's any parallel to what happened to this country in the late 1980s and what's happening right now. And I'll give you an example now, excuse me for being a bit amateur on the subject. This is more from a student trying mm. to learn from a professor. Because I, I have no expertise. And yeah. I, like you said, you're not an expert. I'm far from it. I'm here to learn. Iraq invades Kuwait. Yeah. Syria Iraq, does not... Iraq invades Kuwait. Hey, Saddam yeah. invades yeah. in 1990. Yeah. Syria is not directly involved in that war. They're actually bystanders to that war. The Syrian regime is not calling Saddam and Saddam is not calling Hafez al-Assad. But the Syrian presence in Lebanon solidifies as a result of that war. This sort of perhaps tangential diplomatic gains Syria makes as a consequence of that invasion that are felt here by 1991 
and throughout the 1990s that that stranglehold over Lebanese politics is solidified through diplomacy, but also through direct military presence in this country. But diplomacy plays a role. And if memory serves me right, it is not because America gives a green light for Hafiz to take Michel Aoun out of Ba'abda. It's more in an American acceptance of what stability looks like in this country post-civil war, and that's Syrian occupation. Is there any analogy or parallel, for that matter, with what's happening right now? In other words, Hezbollah is not directly involved. Hezbollah may not even be fully aware of what Hamas does in Gaza all the time. And I think I read it in your last piece in Carnegie, it's almost it's taken for granted that Hezbollah was not aware that this operation was going to happen. That to me signals that maybe Iran is not, it's not exactly one thing. It could be several entities at once. Maybe they're not always coordinating fully. Almost like a machine with several levers at once, Hezbollah's caught off guard. Iran may actually gain diplomatically this round in Lebanon, the way Syria gained diplomatically in Lebanon. In other words, Whatever Iran needs in Lebanon is solidified diplomatically as a result of whatever deal emerges from Gaza. It's a very loose and very uh, amateur sort of question, but do you see that echoing or repeating itself here and that we're not the battlefield necessarily, but we're the victim politically? Yeah, I mean, I... I I haven't thought about that analogy specifically because, um, you know, for me, this is a multi, I mean, what, what's emerging is the U.S. is a, um, is a leading power mm. and then you have a multipolar reality emerging across the region. Mm. We're seeing different uh, setups in each country, you know, the, uh, the, five, uh, the five countries, you know, mm. meet in Paris or meet in uh, uh, Doha. And uh, in Syria, you have Astana and uh, Libya. <laughs> yeah. different. So these different uh, arrangements emerge in different places. Um, and Hezbollah is not, you know, what the Syrian regime was here. The Syrian regime was occupying mm -hmm. um, all of Lebanon. And it kind of dictated what was said or what was uh, or managed what was said in, in the parliament or what vote was in the parliament etc mm -hmm. leading to whatever outcome that wanted um, and what happened with the invasion um, the Iraq um, the Iraq uh, invasion of Kuwait was that you know, of course Assad was a major adversary to Saddam mm -hmm. and he supported the uh, liberation of Kuwait he also sent a small force there Mm. And his backing of that war led to the U.S. kind of endorsing an end to the Lebanese civil war, according to the uh, Syrian playbook. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Assad negotiated along his, his own way the relation, mitigated his relationship with, with Iran. I mean, we had the Harb al-Ukhwal, yes. the war of, of brothers between Amal and uh, Syria backed Amal yeah. and, and yeah. Hezbollah, Iran backed Hezbollah, leading to this... Um, deal between um, Iran and Syria, which, you know, gave 
um, way to the shape of Hezbollah with some management. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the Syrian regime did intervene at times uh, when it comes to the hostage situation. Um, they they did force a deal on Hezbollah at one point, and also in 1993, as, as the regime was involved in the Madrid process, mm-hmm. they did massacre Hezbollah. They, uh, they, they, the September massacre, yes. uh, the occurred after a demonstration there. So that management mm. of the relationship was there, and Syria was dictating what Hezbollah can do and what they cannot do. You know, if you're a member of parliament, but you're not a member of government. Right. That's yeah. Amal's share. Yeah. You know, Amal takes the lead in shaping the Shia mm-hmm. politics in, in Lebanon, your resistance. And, you know, this is your uh, limited role. Mm-hmm. Hezbollah grew out of it after 2005. In a sense, yes, it was defending the Syrian regime in Lebanon, but at the same time, it was filling, happily filling the vacuum mm-hmm. and trying to play um, um, a stronger role in and Lebanese politics and shape and replace the Syrian regime's role as a guarantor of resistance and resistance weapons in, in Lebanon in different ways. So that's that's on one hand. But on the other, looking at, you know, if you want to zoom out a little bit and look at Hezbollah um, being on the one hand um, on the defensive after 2005 trying to keep its share and, and Lebanese politics and keep mm. its status as you know above uh, Lebanese politics or any type of any state politics yep. in which you have a state that has a monopoly over violence and you have um, that's interesting. It's less sub-state, more strata state actually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's above, above. It's, it's above. above the state. Yeah, and it's um, it's like basically the Iranian regime in which you know um, you can have in elections. But it's a controlled elections with a controlled outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the Islamic Republic and the Wilayat al-Faqih and, and, and mm-hmm. the shape of the regime outside debate. What's in debate is basically um, limited. You can you know, discuss what kind of tariff you want to have on bananas, but you know you can't discuss what type of regime you want to have or, um, you know, um, you can't vote someone in if that person is not a guaranteed mm-hmm. outcome for the regime. Mm-hmm. Same thing in, is emerging in Lebanon, is taking shape in Lebanon, in which mm-hmm. you're not allowed, you know, if, if you speak about these things, you know, we, we won't accept you as a president. We don't accept you as a mm-hmm. official. It's more difficult, but it's occurring and it's happening. And I think it's um, it's taking shape. And if we zoom out and we look at, you know, all the years of, of influence that Hezbollah has accumulated um, in here, um, on one hand, after the Syria conflict kind of ended in, in the way that, you know, the outcome was quite clear in 2017. Mm. That the outcome was quite clear that Assad regime is remaining. Okay, mm. you have... And this enclave in the north, and they have the um, the northeast, but then the rest of the country is under Assad's control, with the Iranian militias and, and uh, or the pro-Iran militias um, active there. When that emerged, we, you know, when you look at the narratives that Hezbollah brought to the table, was basically, you know, we won, and um, you know, how is going that? How is that going to reflect on in Lebanese yeah. politics? Yeah. So the, the question was then that, you know, 
historically in, in Lebanon, there was a wall for the Syrian regime. And now the Syrian regime is saved by Hezbollah and is actually propped up by Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has a presence in Damascus. Mm. So the relationship has shifted. Yeah. So, you know, in, in a sense that the Syrian regime is a tool of influence by Hezbollah on Lebanese politics mm-hmm. one way or the other. So if it ever plays a role of a broker, of influencer, etc., that Hezbollah is there, you know, on the other side, uh, showing up with that um, type of influence. And then if you look at, you know, the way um, Hariri is out now in terms of politics, I'm not sure if you'll come back, there's not lots of, uh, mm-hmm. lots of talk about that, but he's out in, in terms of politics. There's a great Sunni vacuum. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing Hezbollah's share in Sunni politics, you know, grow and not, not diminish. Mm. And um, and now with what, what, whatever is happening in this war and the Hamas, um, you know, um, if, if Hamas emerges victorious, if you are going to entertain that outcome on the Sunni politics and the implications on, on the Sunni public opinion, you know, what will emerge from that perhaps is a even a further kind of uh, mm. a slice of the Sunni pie uh, for Hezbollah. But also what we're seeing across the past years and, and now perhaps with the Gaza war, this will be um, you know, um, grown um, is Hezbollah's influence within the camps, within the Palestinian camps. Mm. Um, so the question is, you know, if Hezbollah attains a level of influence within the camps, inside Syria, in Sunni politics, as you know, and and, and let's say its monopoly mm. is stable among um, the Shia population and its representation of Shia politics, and it secures um, a president which is allied um, with it. I mean, long term wise. Syrian regime, which plays a role in Lebanon historically, I might return to that, mm-hmm. um, assuming that role. Um, Palestinian camps, which are which were part of a problem in, in Lebanon in terms of being security nuisance when they needed to be sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, the Syrian regime deployed that in Nahr al-Birid, you know, according to many in Lebanon and how, how, how many view Sheikh al-Absi as being a, you know, a Syrian... Um, but, yeah. A Syrian uh, actor or a Syrian regime-backed mm. actor. Um, so, with all these different layers of influence, you know what will come out of it, and um, also this will make us think about, you know, beyond that the the process mm. that's emerging. So now we have um, the maritime yeah. um, borders uh, and the agreement that was uh, that was reached, in which. Um, the Lebanese state was negotiating, but in the backstage there was Hezbollah. So that, you know, it's a it's a mediate, it's a state which is acting as a mediator. There was no serious opposition to Syria's role in Lebanon until two thousand five, regionally, internationally. I sense that that could happen in that Iran is looked at as the pacifying force in Lebanon uh, favorably. So that opposition to Hezbollah is the way opposition to Syria existed here. It's sort of marginalized. It's not taken too seriously. And I, I thought of that as maybe a an outcome of regional war that Lebanon is not directly involved in. That that could be the diplomatic victory. 
because I don't see any other serious reason or serious advantage Iran has this round in Lebanon other than more of a role. I, I can't think of... It's not a military victory for them. Hamas uh, surviving is a psychological victory, less a military one. I think the region enjoys that psychological victory. While Hamas may not be able to do any military operation again, so the psychological victory is clear, but the military victory, I don't see it. Mm -hmm. I do see diplomatic gains, but I don't know if I'm stretching it too far. I mean, it all it all depends on what, who is on the other side of the table as well. I mean, we're mm -hmm. we're assuming now that the um, past phase in which Saudi Arabia took a backseat, didn't mm. want to be involved in Lebanese politics, at least not in, in the ways that were in place before. I think, you know, this conflict has changed so many things. Perhaps we shouldn't also assume that there will be no Arab pushback in mm. Lebanon yeah. um, and, and elsewhere. Mm. And I think, um, you know this this uh, this could have an impact on the outcome. Perhaps we'll see um, uh, we'll see a pushback leading um, to some sort of change in, in Lebanese politics, and perhaps we'll see Saudi Arabia and Iran work together in Lebanon towards um, right. certain goals. You know, there's a give and take on different um, um, dossiers. You know, in Yemen, that perhaps mm. there will be a different arrangement allowing Lebanon. Um, you know, to take a, um, a political route, um, which would see Iranian-Saudi understanding mm. in the next phase. I mean, this is all up in the air now, but I think, um, you know, what we're, um, what we're seeing in Lebanon is we should, we should not be confined to the current level of rhetorics and the debates that we're seeing. Mm. There are some real changes on the ground. You know, this is a... Um, this is a country which, whose, you know, where state institutions are being, um, you know, diminished um, month by month, year by year. They're losing their um, mm -hmm. ability to um, um, to recover. I think that there needs to be a serious push for reform. If this current trajectory continues, you know, it would be quite difficult for anyone to say, "Ah, uh, oh, I support." Um, you know, withdrawing uh, or changing the weapons. Uh, you, you can't even secure your neighborhood, perhaps, at mm. some stage, mm. if, if this if this uh, evolves into um, in, in the same in the same way. Or perhaps we'll we'll you know we'll see a continuation of this current state of affairs, in which you know the state is weak, unable to assume new roles, mm. um, and the current population trends that we're seeing. You know, we have two million Syrian refugees. Perhaps these will increase in, mm. in the next phase. Um, you know, we have a large uh, Palestinian population. Um, I, I don't know what the numbers were, but there were about 200,000 if you added yeah. them to Syrian yeah. Palestinians. Many of them, you know, have, have um, different political affiliation. And, um, you know, these population trends, we should look at them and see also what kind of implications they will have in the long term. Mm. Specifically, if the Syrian regime wants to play a role in Lebanon, I mean, you know, yeah. that, that's... But I don't see it playing the same role it played before. I mean, this is a, a regime that controls smaller territory than it used to. I mean, they, they, they have a greater battle in Syria to fight for them. 
And also, um, they have so many challenges to overcome mm-hmm. um, in terms of the relationship with the world and um, in terms of internally. I mean, Bashar al-Assad not only shares parts of its territory with uh, different actors, but also internally within the regime, there are um, actors that have gained um, mm. some um, some power, and, and he's you know he's sharing uh, power internally and also um, within within the country um, um, within the country's different territories among them. Yeah. So I see it as, as as difficult to play the same role, and also the relationship between Syrian regime and Iran and Hezbollah. Um, has changed. Hezbollah yep. is not a party in Lebanon that the Syrian regime can dictate. Right. You know, it's a party in southern Damascus, so 15 minutes or 20 minutes away. It's quite interesting. It's Hezbollah that wants Sleiman Frenji, not necessarily Syria. That to me is, is that's the rule change right there. It's Hezbollah advocating for a Syrian ally, not necessarily Bashar telling Hezbollah we want Sleiman Frenji. It's not only a Syrian ally, it's also a special relationship with Syria. Yeah. Not, um, yeah. Will not have a great economic impact on Lebanon right. or the country, maybe yeah. perhaps. But that um, they want Lebanon to be um, connected to Syria in ways, mm-hmm. making it more and more dependent yeah. in, in a way on, on, on Syria and whatever goes on. And, mm-hmm. uh, so a large Syrian population, dependency on Syria, mm-hmm. a um, Palestinian refugee population, which is not very far politically from from where Hezbollah is, but mm-hmm. still manageable. I mean, they don't want Hamas also to become the yeah. only power in Palestinian camps. They want it to be managed, and so all of these different things and and add yeah. to it the Hezbollah weapons and their um, attempt to fill some of the vacuum in, in the Sunni political space. You know, I think I think these the, these will put the, put the organization in a, um, a better position ahead. Yeah. But I don't. I still don't see that unchallenged. You know, I, I see. Um, you know, it's actually Michael Young that first drew me to that idea of Syria reemerging in a political manner, not necessarily to a degree that it once had, but that it could play a role alongside Iran and Lebanon. And just to circle back to Diwan, uh, I want to highlight this: Instagram and social media today make it seem like uh, false narratives are true. I think it takes some patience to read through the articles published by Carnegie to gain a far more nuanced take on what's happening. Just your tone in general really puts things in perspective. And I appreciate hearing what you're saying. I'll wrap it up with one final thought, with your permission. Of course, of course. Uh, The battlefield role that Lebanon continues to play in 2024. Uh, Battlefield in that there is... Every day, every hour, some military operation happening in this country that is not state-driven. This is reminiscent of the 1990s to me, where there is a sub-state group that is able to determine to a degree what it finds necessary to whether it's strategic, whether it's precision missiles, whether it's just military-military, tit-for-tat, doesn't matter. There is some battlefield role Lebanon plays. And that's 34 years after the Civil War. Uh, my memories of 2000, when the Israelis left the South, is Syrian paranoia. The Syrian regime disturbed by not having a battlefield role that they can leverage. Um, I think it became Hezbollah's primary concern and that Shaba is not enough to legitimize an Iranian proxy army's role in this country. 
but that is all put on the side right now. And you said it earlier. When you're, you can't, when you can't defend your own neighborhood, you're not going to be talking about geopolitical substate weapons in Lebanon, and that's true. But the battlefield rule continues. If you're trying to look ahead, is there any serious uh, appetite to finally put that battlefield rule to rest? Is there any regional hinting of that? Because I, I don't see it in any corner. Uh, and it could be when the French visit, when these five nations meet in Doha. Uh, it could be even American messaging on what could be favorable outcome this time. I don't hear it, that there's any real appetite to push Iran to reconsider that rule right now. Do, do you hear it in any corners and do you see it happening? For me, it's a it's a given now that this is a permanent situation, not not a temporary one. As in Hezbollah, as giving in, away its weapons, um, as in uh, a long term process, perhaps. Yeah, like the, the defense strategy. The things that were discussed the last two decades that went nowhere. Strategy defense, and it was a defense strategy. Um, yeah, or even trying to engage Iran on its role in Lebanon. I don't see that happening either. Mm -hmm. So locally and uh, regionally, for me, it's almost like, just like the Syrian occupied this country for 15 years. Yeah. I can see a situation where sub-state weapons are acceptable as an outcome long-term. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see the organization engaging in a process that would lead to it giving up its weapons. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it's, it's a regional um, player. Mm -hmm. It's no longer Lebanon confined. Okay, remove its weapons from Lebanon, but it's in Syria as well. <laughs> so yeah. Perhaps it has some presence in Iraq or elsewhere that we don't know of. Um, per se, it would be quite difficult to do that but, and, and, and see that happening. But I think what's attainable is having a um, national defense strategy in which um, there would be kind of a political umbrella in which, you know, you have the army and also you have this um, another non-state actor. Mm. And that would help mitigate some of the rules that Hezbollah is ambitious about, you know, whether getting involved in another conflict somewhere mm. else or dragging Lebanon's, um, um, you know, Lebanon's foreign policy um, in a way which is antagonistic uh, to the Arab world, for instance, and, and, mm. and affects its own the country's own economic interests, like what happened during the Yemen conflict and its standing then, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a national um, defense strategy in which there would be a process negotiating with Hezbollah is is useful. I think it would it would be um, it would only reach a favorable solution when the um, geopolitics shift, and they do shift. I mean, we, we're seeing them shift. I mean, now the tide perhaps is, is favorable uh, to Iran's regime, but perhaps, you know, we'll see a different tide. And I think that process is useful uh, for the country to be ready in case the state recovers mm. and in case, you know, we head in that direction. Mm. But if the current vacuum and the current trends and trajectory um, continue, um, I think it would be quite difficult to speak to uh, Hezbollah about anything regarding its own weapons mm. when you know we're seeing even other actors emerge 
you know, now there's in, there are new organizations uh, coming mm. back. Mm. You know, Amal, for instance, uh, is launching rocket attacks. Uh, it was today. Fajr, yeah, yeah, Fajr is, is uh, Jamal al-Islami's mm. uh, militant arm is, is launching uh, attacks. And perhaps also there are, we know that there are other actors. We mm. saw them in, uh, uh, during the 2008 May uh, yeah. 7 conflict. You know, these, these are, these are there, but I think, you know, if one is to be hopeful is that there's a process which will set the stage for, um, for, such, a, for such a big shift. But currently, um, you know, in, in the light of the Gaza conflict and the sentiment that will emerge after it, I think, uh, you know, it's a, um, it's a formative uh, period and I think many things are owed to change in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. So it's a... Uh, it's difficult to say, you know, where where we're heading in the next uh, year or two. Uh, you know, I, f I fear that we will be more on the receiving end in, in Lebanon. Well, that camera is still going. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's perfect timing. I'm glad yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's time to perfection. Yeah. I want to say, first of all, thank you, Wael, for hosting this episode. First of a mini series you'll be doing. Thank you for letting me butt in towards the end. No, I enjoyed the last part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was and very crucial for you. Too. For me, it's an honor to actually speak to you, Thank you. Uh, my, in my person pleasure. for some time. I think we've only met uh, indirectly through common friends. And I think we actually at Rasif in Hamra once we sat down sort of next to each other yeah. with common friends in the middle. So it's good to get to know you a bit better. Same here. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Beirut Banyan has a huge audio following, but we need to build this YouTube channel. So please like, subscribe and comment and let's get this YouTube channel on the algorithm. Okay. By the way, I love the part you said, you're, I was going to butt in, but then I'm like, it's too serious. You're like, I'm not a military expert. And I was going to say, C4 is a military <laughs> And then I decided not to, because I didn't want to. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> So close. Yeah. I was like, I might ruin everything. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what Steve Moore means in this one? It's not an intercom. We, have, uh, we should have put him on the spot and introduced him as a, as an ex-Lebanese <laughs> army. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>